Hello and welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast. Over the many years I've been running a business, I've met many, many successful people, entrepreneurs, sports stars, celebrities, and dare I say, even royalty. So what makes a person successful? Do we know what success is? And the all-important question, can we create success for ourselves? This podcast series invites a diverse group of people to share their insights, their wisdom, and the things they've learned along the way. Now, it's not often I get unbelievably excited about a guest, uh, but this week I truly am. Today, I'm joined by Phil Gould. Many of you will know the name already. Some of you won't. But let me tell you that Phil is and was an incredibly talented musician who's enjoyed a stellar career, particularly with a hugely successful band in the 1980s and the early 1990s. I'll introduce them in a second because you'll know exactly who I'm talking about. But Phil began his incredible music career as a drummer with pop group M, many of you will know them, reaching the top of the US charts and number two in the UK. Following this, Phil formed the legendary jazz funk band Level 42, who had huge international success all over the world. And since joining uh, that band, Phil, of course, has become a household name in music. And we'll talk about some of the other people in music he's been associated with. But of course, 40 plus years on, Phil left the band, now ready to reinvent himself and for the world to hear his music with the release of his new album, Beautiful Wounds, coming no less then, as I said, 40 years after the release of Level 42's first single, Love Meeting Love. Um, not often I'm starstruck, Phil, uh, with great respect to every guest that's preceded you. Uh, but you're, you're definitely right up there with uh, the people that I'm already all of a quiver to speak to because I grew up on Level 42. I've got every single, uh, certainly every album that you ever released and possibly every single on vinyl and still listen to the music just the other day. Uh, I was entertaining my family with some of your stuff. So it's absolute joy and a real honour to be speaking to you on the Sandro Forte podcast today. And, and thank you, given that you're so busy, for joining us. It's a pleasure, Sandro. I really appreciate that, that lead-in. It's incredible. Um, yeah, I really appreciate those kind, kind words. Um, it's kind of, you know, you think back to what happened prior to that, where you're growing up in the Isle of Wight and dreaming of, you know, getting into music, dreaming having a music career, and the fact that you could... Uh, you know, be in people's lives in any way, shape, or form. It's just such a remote possibility. The fact that that we we did what we did is still still resonates and resonated so strongly with you and so many others is 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 the greatest honor a musician can have. You know, I mean, if you can become the soundtrack to people's lives, I mean, that's it, isn't it? That's the ultimate honor a musician can have. Absolutely, you know? and we'll talk about that, Phil. But you know, I know you grew up in the Isle of Wight, but you were born in Hong Kong. I think I'm right in saying. Yeah. How, yeah, how, I mean, my, what happened my father there? Was Tell a, us about your background. My father was a, a journalist at that time after the war. You know, it was a foreign correspondent. He 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 described himself because he was always involved in foreign uh, matters, like either in Asia. He spent time in Korea uh, in in the fifties uh, covering that war. He got kicked out of Korea because he tried to uh, interview you know soldiers and wasn't allowed to do it. So he was kind of all over that. He he was in Vietnam. Um, and later, so we, we, my family, my mum moved, I think, shortly after the war. They, they went to Vancouver initially, and my brother, an older brother, was born there. Then he went to um, Hong Kong and then to Tokyo. A sister was born in Tokyo. 
I think he went back to the Isle of Wight. My, my, my brother, Boone, was born on the Isle of Wight. Now, he was always a bit annoyed about that. And, you know, because we, and then we went back to Hong Kong and I was born there, but Boone was born on the Isle of Wight. He was upset as a kid because he didn't have this exotic <laughs> birthplace, you know. But they, they, they went and they, they were out of the UK for like 12 years. They just went across America, then across the Pacific. And my father was a very successful freelance journalist. So that was the, the, the world that he lived in. In fact, he was number 33 of the Foreign Correspondents Club of, of uh, Japan, which is a very august institution, you know, and people like all those famous American journalists, like Edward Moreau, uh, Walter Cronkite, were all out there after the war, you know. So he had these, uh, and he even knew Yoko Ono from the press club. She used to hang around the press club in the, in the late 50s, early 60s, before she became, uh, you know, in, interested in rock and roll. So he had a very, very interesting... Um, time uh, but but I was a baby when uh, I was born and my mom came home she wanted us to come back and have a, a British education blah 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 and they separated so I, that was it that was I was I, I only ever be, went back to Hong Kong one time and that was uh, we did three gigs in um, the Far East so I've never been back since but yeah so it's kind of interesting growing up in the Isle of Wight knowing you came from out there somewhere because it was kind of a it gave you a different perspective I think and maybe that's one of the reasons why we weren't quite so terrified of leaving the island as many of our peers were because we we, we, we came from out there you know mm. and um, your, your your brother Boone uh, and you Bill you wrote I mean you lost your brother a couple of years ago sadly um I, I think he was 64 um so you know no age but you two wrote all the lyrics didn't you for level 42 um and prior to that, them, yeah yeah uh, but prior to that you were uh your band M just tell us about your your first steps into music, because I mean that was a that was a smash hit. I mean, um, if if I tell everyone that the the name of the song was pop music, I mean they they may not instantly remember it, but if they heard if they heard me attempting to sing it, they definitely wouldn't know it. But if they uh, if they otherwise heard it, they would know exactly what I was talking about. So your your initial um, foray into music um, through that first band and then into Level Forty Two, how did that all come about? Well, I, mean, you know, I started playing when I was 15, drums, and I joined my brother's band, actually, to, 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 you know, so I got a kit. He needed a drummer, so I got a kit, and I joined his band. And we were jamming on the island, and we went through various cycles of bands. We, we had bands. I met Mark King um, when I was 17, I think, or maybe 18, and uh, he kind of sat, sat in with our band, and he was, he was a drummer at that time. So we were playing together in various iterations through our, our late teen years, and I started studying classical music when I was about 18. And I started studying classical percussion and piano. And I, I wanted to go to music college in London because I thought that was a way to get off the island. To, 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 in those days, you got money to do it. You got grants and all this thing. So I got to London and I was doing, the last three years I lived on the island, I was doing holiday camps in order to earn money. And then I got to London and was at the Royal Academy and just getting into that kind of student life and studying. And, and then I got a call to do a, a TV show for uh, this guy who needed a, a pickup band to do the t a TV show for this track. And then that, that morphed into us going to Montreux the following summer and recording this album. That was M, you know, like, so I go from doing a holiday cap. I think my last summer season, I was doing Warner St. Clair, Pup Pool on the Isle of Wight. And then I, I was in, then the next, the following summer I was in Montreux, in Mountain Studios, you know, Queen's Studio in Montreux. And uh, what a wild moment. Yeah. So, 
but it was basically a studio band that you know Robin Robin Scott who who wrote pop music he he put together a group of musicians and we just recorded the tracks so it wasn't like a band band you know it wasn't like we were in the band we were just M it was a concept you know and we did all the TV shows and Robin had huge success with it yeah but it was kind of an interesting thing it was a great experience because I met Gary Barnacle the sax player who's who did a lot of stuff with Low 42 and also the great break from that experience was working with Wally Badaru on the M stuff and Wally was a key a component of level 42 is it was a co-composer but he was a synth guy he came up with all the synth sounds you know mike mike did mike lindup was more of a piano based you know he's a music student he rose and piano but wally did all the synths, which was one of the reasons why i think the band had incredible success later because it was such a unique uh combination i mean uh, wally was working with grace jones uh you know foreigner later you know talking heads and the fact that we had him in our, you know, in our musical landscape was a huge plus for us, you know. So working with them was a massive break. It was a stepping stone to what happened with Level 42. I think the second ML we did our first single at all, it just, just came out around the same time. So it was an overlap between M into Level 42. And then from there, on, on from there, you know. Yeah, it was it was an extraordinary journey. I, I've got to ask you this. Uh, I am I'm a little bit biased. Would you say, notwithstanding, of course, your your new music, your latest album, which we'll talk about in a moment, um, would you say that the 1980s, Phil, was the best era for music? Well, I think it was a great era. I, I personally think, for me, I think the 1970s was the most extraordinary time because if you think about like what you got from 1970 to 1980, what the, how music was, you know, and what was available to you, um, because labels were run, still run by music people, and also still run by people that uh, would give things a chance, you know. So you would get you, a lot of weird and wonderful things got signed that wouldn't later get signed, you know. So I think the landscape of the seventies into the eighties was pretty extraordinary. But I'm biased about the seventies because I grew up, you know, from Stevie mm. Wonder, Weather Report, you know, uh, Funk, you know, Herbie Hancock. All the Joni Mitchell, Paul Simon, all the things that were going on in the seventies that I adored, you know. But the eighties were pretty spectacular in their own way, and the reason why those two decades were as extraordinary as they were in many respects is because um, the the music industry was sort of awash with money, you know. And like people in labels, like small labels like Four AD and all these little independent labels, were able to thrive in that market, and they, and they would sign bands and. You know, you'd have these little wonderful independent artists releasing stuff, and some of those went on to become big stars. And, and there was all these little independent labels. And we, we initially, were, Level 42, were signed to an independent label, um, uh, Elite Records, which is just coming out of a record shop in North London, you know. And it's kind of a... Because there was such a, an explosion of... Uh, record sales and money in the system, that meant there was an awful lot of stuff that got through the net that maybe won't get through now. Like the fact that we got signed to Polydor Records on a five album deal on the back of one independently released single is extraordinary, you know, you know, and they, and they genuinely thought they were getting a British Earth, Wind & Fire, you know, like a, a maybe a largely white Earth, Wind & Fire, the three white guys and one colour guy. That's probably part of it as well, if you, truth be told, you know. But um, 
the fact is that nowadays we wouldn't we, we wouldn't get that now we're in a five album deal so that five album deal meant that we learned how to write songs how to perform on stage we got tour support we were put with on tour support with the police and people like that and it was just an extraordinary thing to go through and like by the fourth or fifth album we began to learn how to write songs and then we had major success with the fifth and sixth records you know so it's kind of a an incredible time and the fact that we, we could look back on it with fondness, um, like uh, even into the early 90s, which was also quite an extraordinary period with Nirvana and all these incredible things, hip hop and stuff. It's, it's, it has to be, you know, you have to kind of marry it to the fact that that was the most successful period in the record business. There was money around it and people would often take, you know, like the first record that Richard Branson released on Virgin Records, The Tubular Bells. It's not like some, like, you know, guarantee, you know, like, like a boy band, you know, it's like, Tubular Bells, which is this kind of like really, you know, almost like uh, ambient piece. Um, and that was the thinking at the time. People were taking incredible risks. So the fact that Polydor could take a risk on this sort of funk band um, because they thought we were kind of funky in that way that was commercial, whereas a lot of the time we were doing instrumentals, which wasn't overly commercial for them. Um, it was quite extraordinary, really. We, we were very lucky to be in that moment. I, th- I don't think it would have happened maybe 10 years or 20 years later. But, but at the same time, I think you're being a bit modest here, if you don't mind me saying, you also had to be extremely talented, which you clearly all were. I mean, it, it was extraordinary, your success through it, through an entire decade. Um, and all of those albums, it'd be difficult to pick a favourite, really. But one question I have for you, based on what you've just said, Phil, is that, you know, there you are one minute in a holiday camp, then you're in Montreux, and then you're touring the world with, you know, one of the biggest bands of the 80s. How, how do you deal? And, and the reason I'm asking this is that a lot of people who listen to this podcast, Phil, are, you know, the business owners, they're young people looking to, um, to try and uh, move from one place in life to another. They find they've got certain challenges. Staying grounded is difficult. You know, sometimes a lack of success is challenging. Sometimes too much of it too soon is also challenging. So how do you guys deal with, that superstardom that happened so quickly for you. Well, I mean, or, or did you not? <laughs> well, I think I think we're uh, actually the way that we were quite lucky with Level Forty Two was that we got to a place of like the headline place over a period of time. We we took a, a little while. We had, the first record was silver, I think, and then the second one was uh, silver, and then gold, and then silver, and then we went platinum you know um but i think we, we built up to it which was quite cool for us because we had to learn an awful lot of stuff like actually we were a, a band an accidental band the bass player mark king was actually in his whole you know childhood intended to be a drummer so he was an he was a he was an accidental bass player he, he played guitar and drums as from a young age but that wasn't his idea you know it was my idea <laughs> Actually, because we were jamming together and, he, you know, being me, you know, he, I couldn't play. I played a bit of piano, but I couldn't play another instrument. So he ended up um, playing a role, a singing bass player that he'd never dreamed of doing. And so we kind of t- needed a, to make that adjustment. And so we, we were very fortunate. We had two or three years to make that adjustment as musicians and try to learn how to write songs. And uh, and. But in, in terms of the business, like how, how we approach business, in the early phase of it, I was 22 or 23 when we got signed. I was just, I never thought about that. I, if somebody said we got a publishing deal, I just signed something. I didn't even know what it was. Somebody put something in front of me, you know. And it took me a long time to actually even begin to think about the business side. I was just being paid money. 
And then, I, you know, royalties started to come in because we were, we were all writing the material. And it just, it's really weird. I didn't, I did have a, a my, 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 my uncle Roly was very good with me because I did actually, even though I was a bit of a space cadet in that respect, I did say, look, I need, I need life insurance. I had a kid by the time I was 21, actually. So I need life insurance. Also, I started a pension, you know, like, so at least, although I was kind of a bit off, off, off world, you know, you know, thinking about music and not thinking about, I did actually have that conversation with myself a little bit to protect my, my girlfriend, you know, the mother of my child with life insurance. So, um, and suddenly the pension. So it's kind of interesting, but it was only much later that I really, I really, um, it was only much later that I really sort of started paying attention to that side of things. So um, back in uh, late 80s, you you leave the band. Alan, as we mentioned earlier, sadly passed away very young, 35. Uh, and then I, I think I'm right in saying that um, there was a kind of a dispute, let's call it that. Um, I, I think you were unhappy about the way uh, the music was going with level, level 42. You leave the band and then you reappear all, all this time later. Um, with a with a new album that you've written yourself, Beautiful Wounds. Tell us about that and and what inspired you and what kind of music it is, Phil. Well, I'm kind of I, I suppose I'm still writing songs, you know, in the way I may maybe used to in the past. I've got a lot of influences under my belt. I mean, I I, I, I adore music and listen all the time, and I've got three amazing kids who uh, who've dialed me into a lot of things that go on. But I listen to music all the time. I've always been I've always been a student and a passionate um, advocate of music. So I'm kind of, uh, you know, I've been working away for, you know, for a long time on music that hasn't seen the light of day, working with different artists and writers and uh, also um, uh, putting out music that maybe people haven't heard because I've self-released a lot of things. But like, it's kind of just, it's just another thing for me. But it's like, because I've got the uh, access to a label now and the promotional team, we're trying to shed light on it. And we're trying to find a way to uh, to have, have people hear it because I'm very proud of it. I'm very proud of my collaborators and I'm very proud of the um, everybody involved. I mean, the label, the artwork is incredible. So we just, and I, we, we did a wonderful video in Vienna a couple of years ago with, uh, with this incredible director. I mean, actually the music was finished in 2019, but of course, a lot of things did happen that year. I lost my brother, and um, then last year we had the pandemic. We weren't sure what to do, <laughs> so it's taken a while to get the music out. But I, I just, uh, I think I've evolved as a writer since level forty-two. But I think if people were to hear the music, they would probably hear elements of the way you know that I, because I actually co-wrote a lot of that music, and not yeah. many people know that about about the, the band. I mean, most with most bands, if they hit, they see the lead singer, they think the lead singer does everything, you know. But actually, that band was a, a, a you know, multiple people wrote, you know, people wrote lyrics. We all we all wrote in that band. Yeah, um, well, that's why that's why I was at pains earlier to mention the fact you you co-wrote for for that very reason. It's one thing I understand about most people who see the lead singer and think, oh, that's it, you know, it all happened because of him or her. Um, would you say that musicians are, uh, are overworked? And what I mean by that, you know, we do hear, Phil, you know, staggering number of, of musicians that suffer mental health problems, exhaustion because of scheduling. Uh, is that just part of the deal that you sign up to? Is it something you have to just simply accept and get on with? Or, or could more be done to try and protect musicians from, from that kind of burnout? I think it's very difficult. Like a lot of... A lot of people are struggling for many years and then all of a sudden they have success and they think they have to be everywhere. And that's what can lead to burnout. You know, I mean, like like we 
I think the last three years I was in Love 42, from the age of 27 to 30, it was just nonstop without a break with maybe, you know, two weeks off to see Live Aid or something like that, you know, or do a video. It was absolutely ridiculous. All, all a few weeks to go and write an album, you know. There, there were times where you possibly, you know, we were in a recovery phase when we were doing the writing, maybe it wasn't so physically strenuous, but there was, it wasn't ever a real break. And I think in the end, my brother and I got very sick. You know, I actually... I'd already said I was going to leave the band at the end of uh, that year that I left. And then I, I ended up in hospital two months before the end of the year because it was just too much, you know, mm-hmm. uh, psychologically, emotionally, and also just the physical nature of, of what you're required to do. Going on stage is it's an amazing thing. And I know it might sound like you're moaning to people that have these really strenuous jobs that they do, but really you're, 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 you're giving two and a half hours of adrenaline to this moment it's like being like being a sportsman or something like that you have to burn up an awful lot of resources to do that every night and if you don't have a break to recover then physically it's not even like it's not a lack of will it's just physically what the body is able to accomplish you know and both my brother and I got you know really we both had sort of breakdowns and we took a long time to recover from that and we both, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel fully recovered, you know, from that experience. But my brother, I don't think, really ever did. And it's kind of like he was struggling with the whole situation. And um, I, I, I think it's also down to your mentality. I think when, when you're, if you're, if you're into, if you're really behind what you're doing, you can put up with any manner of stress. Perhaps the first five years, I was completely committed to where we were as a, as a group, you know, a group of musicians. And then we started to get really formulaic about the way we made music. And, and I became, it felt bad to me. You know, we started using sequences and it just felt like really, it, it just was felt wrong. And then it became a real stress then. So mm. the last 18 months of touring was playing to sequences and a lot of songs I didn't like, you know, was was uh, as much as you're trying to tell yourself, hey, you know, it's great, we're successful, headlining Glastonbury, like we should appreciate it, you know. But the reality is it's not what it's not what floats your boat, you know, and it becomes a stress. If you're like in any business, if you're if you're hundred percent committed and fulfilled by what you're doing, you don't feel the stress in the same way. If you're if you're struggling with the nature of your job or what you're doing, the stress can impact you in a in a completely different way and, and much worse way usually, you know. And that's kind of what happened. So the, you know, the last eighteen months it was really difficult. But you know, looking back on it now, I realised what we what we went through was you know pretty rarefied. And a bunch of mates got signed, travelled the world, got recognised, and we was that we're able to write our own music to a large extent without too much interference from the label. You know, we got a bit of pressure from time to time and not having success. But we we had, we got a lot out there into the world that, you know, was, you know, we you know we could stand behind and we believed in, you know. So it's only a little bit towards the end that is a bit of a sour note for me. Mm. I admitted at the start of this podcast today, Phil, that um, I was a little bit starstruck. <laughs> uh, that pales into insignificance when compared to the types of people you used to meet. But I know you met David Bowie one day. I know you're on the road with Queen and Madonna at different times. Anyone that you were particularly starstruck by, or anybody you've got fond memories of, or particularly stood out to you as a, a you know, as an extraordinary musician, somebody that inspired you? Any any particular memories of one or more people? Oh, there's so. I mean, there's so many. I mean, it's so great to just be in the room with something. Like, I met, I shook hands with Paul McCartney. He said, I like that song, lads. You know, we were at the, we were at the talking about something about you when we were at the Princess Trust. That was cool. Uh, 
I, I was very starstruck around Peter Gabriel. I, was, I met Peter a couple of times and could barely say one word because he's, you know, just an absolute, uh, you know, brilliant person and a musician. And that day with Bowie actually was a very significant day. It wasn't meant to be. I mean, I was just, we were recording in, Mont, in Queen's studio in, Mount, in Montreux and, and Robin Scott who was an old friend of David Bowie. They were the same age, you know, about 10 years older than me. And David Bowie, I did a drum track and came down and David Bowie was there just sitting, just catching up with Robin. And But Bowie was in Montreux at that time. It's 1979 because, uh, you know, for various reasons, financial, uh, his I think his son's life had been threatened, you know, and also he was just recovering from the Berlin trilogy and, and things like that. So to meet him at the beginning of it all was like a, a huge thing for me because he wasn't in a good place. Um and it was distressing to see how upset he was, actually, and how down and, and, and seemingly broken he was. But the, the, what happened over that winter is he went back into the studio and he created, uh, for me, the best album, Scary Monsters and Ashes to Ashes, which is, I think, the best track he ever did. I mean, I love the early stuff and blah, 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 but Ashes to Ashes is such an incredible record. So, you know, a year later, he came back all guns blazing, which was mm. kind of a a good thing for me to see that I'm entering into a world that can harm you and affect you, but it's not going to destroy you. It didn't destroy him. You know, uh, I was, I was really worried about the state he was in wondering what it might do to me, you know, cause Bowie was a kind of a godlike figure to me, you know, at the end of the seventies, what, what an astonishing, astonishing musical journey he took us all on, you know? Mm. So uh, yeah, that, that's quite extraordinary. And I, I met a lot of people, one of the things that really struck me about the most successful people that I met was that the, the intelligence that lay behind them. You know, when you meet a McCartney or a Bowie or, or Peter Gabriel, these people are super intelligent people. You know, they're not, they're not, up, you know, and then you meet some people that are incredibly successful in the pop industry or the music industry who are not so intelligent and their egos are off the scale, you know, because mm. they, they suddenly think because they're in the top five that they're God's gift to everything, you know. And there's the really interesting, like, you know, we, we supported the police and you met, I met Andy Summers and Stuart and Sting and, you know, super bright people. They're all really intelligent people. So it kind of really struck me that, you know, that when you were around the most successful people in the industry, how, how, how kind of thoughtful and intelligent they were. And you think about the Beatles, you know, when you think about what they created and what they contributed to, but when you listen to any of them talk, yeah, they're super bright, you know. They're, mm. they're, so it was always a key thing for me to try and to find our way, navigate our way through the the minefield of the record industry with just keeping, you know, keeping a lid on things, not getting carried away, not not allowing uh, any the success to get to your head, all this sort of stuff, you know. Just mm. to keep all those kinds of people in mind, you know. To, and always, you know, having studied classical music as well, I mean. You know, if you're in, if you're a number one or some like that, you, you you think that's great, but there's always over there's Mozart over here, you know, there's there's Beethoven yeah. over here. Come on, you know, calm down. You know, it's not like, you know, you, you just got to keep it in perspective. You know, so there's kind of a really interesting uh, aspect of the meet the people that I did meet that just how how I was struck by their intelligence and how I I and also one of the most amazing things you, you know you 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 could find really is like. Uh, the thing about Bowie is just how normal he was. You know, he's the most, he's a really striking looking human being. He's really, you know, beautiful human beings to look at and incredible, he's a charismatic person. But he's just, he's just the most normal person to talk to. And that that really was striking. And the same, same with Sting and same with 
Peter Gabriel, you know. So I think that's one of the things that struck me about um, how to handle success was to be just to be really mindful of how it might affect you and and not let it affect you in in, in that kind of way that you think you're big, you know, you're more important than you are, you know. Hmm. I love that. That's a, that's a great answer. And I think that will resonate with a lot of people, Phil. Um, sorry if this is putting you on the spot a little bit. Do you have a favourite Level 42 song? The one that you're proudest of? I do. There's, there's a track on the third album. It's called I Want Eyes. I Want Eyes. And um, me and Mark wrote that song musically. You know, we wrote the music together. And the lyric was based on a picture I'd had from growing up that my father had taken my father's my father knew this guy uh, a, a very famous war photographer called Sid White and they were they were in Korea together and they both got thrown out of Korea together and they they were taking pictures at this off there was a they went to this this home for blind Korean children Korean children and took all these pictures of the ceramics these Korean children had made and you can imagine what those photographs looked like you know, like sepia you know really big pictures taken on some old huge camera you know and um, i grew up with these images and there was a one one of the images was of this this figure sort of howling it you know into space and and the, the, it was called the translation for the, the figure was i want eyes you know like a blind child making a ceramic mm. of the pain that they feel not not being able to see it was so unbelievably moving to grow up with that so we wrote a song inspired by that about um an anti-war song inspired by that image and I remember the, mark, the, the night Mark sang that in the studio. We recorded it in Los Angeles with um, uh, Larry Dunn and Vadim White from Earth, Wind & Fire. It was an amazing experience. But there was all these people in the room and we're all crying, you know, like everybody's really moved by it. And, and I felt like having come, been sleeping on floors about two years before that, having come from the Isle of Wight, you know, having been on, coming from a little seaside town, to be in the studio in Los Angeles with these guys, to actually making a piece of music, you really feel you're saying something. It's, it just felt like that was the home run for me. That was the mm. success for me. To have a hit single was great, but to be able to do something that was going to move people and say something was the ultimate goal to make what we used to talk about around my mum's kitchen table when we were 17, 18, you know, to make a contribution, you know. So that mm. song is really, that's the one for me that I feel like that's the moment that we, we hit it as a, we became a real band, you know, that night. Nice. And what about, what about your favourite ever song, piece of music, something that really stands out for you if you could, if you could name one above all others? That, that really is putting you on the spot because I'm sure there are hundreds and hundreds to a musician, but any anyone in particular that you kind of, you know, really stands out for you as a, as a fantastic piece of music? Well, I don't know. It's, there are, I, I, my Desert Island songwriter would be Paul Simon. If I had to go to a Desert Island, as long as I get access to Simon and Garfield as well, you know, as a songwriter, I think he's <laughs> one of the most, as a producer, but there's not one track, but I, I think there's one song when you asked me that question, the first song that came into my head was Riverman by Nick Drake. And I think there's something about that piece of music which I think is as close to perfect as can possibly be. If there's one song I'd have to listen again and again and again for the rest of my life with access to no other song, it would possibly be that song. It's probably the most perfect English recording. You have this young English musician in Barnes, in the Olympic studio in Barnes, probably in January or something, 1971. And he's recording with an orchestra and it's perfect. His time is perfect. It's one of the most beautiful, uh, you know, structurally and melodically, it's one of the most beautiful pieces of music you'll hear anyway, lyrically. 
But the fact that that guy had that kind of musicality and he could record a take like that, for me, is, is just off the scale. It, 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 it fills me with joy every time I hear it. So if you don't know it, Riverman, I think it's off um, Three Leaves Left, or Five Leaves Left, that album. Uh, maybe the last album. But yeah, that, that's the piece of music I think stands out for me. But okay. it's incredibly hard to say, man, you know, because like there's, mm. I mean, how, how much music? I know, is- I, know. <laughs> I was putting you on the spot, Phil. Um, and on the subject of fantastic albums, uh, Beautiful Wounds, when when does that release? It was released uh, about 10 days ago. And um, yeah, so we're in the process of promoting that now. I'm glad to say that we look like we sold the run of vinyl. I mean, I'm kind of old school because it's all about streaming and download and all that kind of stuff. We don't know where that's at, but we've sold most of the vinyl and uh, most of the CDs so we can print another run. So I guess in my, my old school brain, the fact that we're selling physical products or physical copies of the music means more than the streaming side. Yeah, yeah so it's out and we're, we're, we've got lots of plans. We're talking to... Um, uh, promotion team today and we're going to be doing hopefully some live things in the in foreseeable future uh, lockdown permitting you know well one of the things that we're going to do uh, Phil and I just so you're all aware spoke at the top of this show about obtaining um, we're obtain five copies of Phil's album um, hopefully in vinyl let's see how we go uh, and uh, and that's going to be available to any of the listeners who do the usual thing when it comes to prizes on the Sandro 40 podcast which is to like and to share. If you do those two things, you'll get drawn at random and five lucky winners will receive a copy of Phil's album with our compliments. So Phil, last question to you, last couple of questions really, both very brief. First of all, how do we find out more about Phil Gould? Are you, um, are you a dinosaur or are you readily available and willing to uh, be followed by lots of people on social media? I am all over social media. I'm trying to figure out how to navigate that landscape and uh yeah i've got instagram and um twitter and facebook but also uh, i have my own website philgoldmusic.com but it's kind of it's kind of interesting i'm just having conversations about the social media side it's kind of i mean i don't know how people build up followers of two hundred thousand, you know and like you know it, it must be doing it day and night in order to get to that place but we we've got to try and find a find a way to build up the instagram because we've got i've got content you know but it's it's interesting i've, I've not uh I've not figured out the way the, the, these algorithms work, I think. But yeah, but, but anyway, we're there. We're, we're present. It's just a question of uh, follow, seeing you. Follow me, Phil. You'll be all right. I will. I will, yeah. Sandra. Yes. We'll have a, we'll so have a lot of people separately. put you on your social media <laughs> you know, position, don't they? Now, like, how many followers do you have? You know? Yeah, I know. Uh, it's all, the world's gone mad. Uh, final question to Phil Gould. Uh, Phil, we ask one question to all of our guests, and it's very simple. Um, Thinking about your life, your career, the tragedies, the, the you know the the times where it didn't quite work out the way you wanted to do, and all the extraordinary success you've achieved, not just back in the you know the eighties and nineties, but you know now with your new album. If a younger version, one of your children, came up to you and said, "Dad, with with all of that amazing experience, good and bad, throughout all those years, all the decades, in in order to help me navigate my way through life." What one single piece of advice would you give me that would stand above all others uh, in order to help me, you know, be- make the best of my life, to, to find myself, to achieve success, whatever that is, different things to different people, is co- of course. But what would that one piece of advice be to a younger version of yourself, Phil? Well, uh, it's really, really difficult to, to, to frame it in one piece of advice. I mean, I think, I think... 
to be on to be honest with yourself is the key to to so much because like you have to you have to really 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 believe if you, that you can do something in order to do it you know you can't be utterly convincing to other people unless you're utterly convinced yourself you know so you know the the power that young people can have if they find I was lucky to find you know music with my brother and with Mark King and my and Mike Linda we were we were a gang of musicians and we found it we were passionate about it and we 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 had a we had a power we were a life force because of that but 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 we had to find out if we were any good at it we had to go and I had to try and go to you know the Royal Academy I had to go for that audition I had to study all God's hours to, to, to see if I was good enough. You know, I had to practice. I had to try, you know, we didn't kid ourselves. You know, we, we, we found out the hard way that actually we could, we could do it, you know? And I think we've just been that searing, searing honesty married to uh, the hard work required. You know, I think a lot of people, young people now, and I, I'm glad to say not my own kids because they've, 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 they've got a great work ethic. But I think a lot of young people just don't, see the work that's needed to put you have to put in to be good at anything mm. you know i mean people talk about ten thousand hours don't they but uh yeah. it's that having the honesty to fight to really right okay i'm I, this is what i want to do and I, I, do i really mean that and then and then doing the work then then you might be in business you know mm. and even then you might not get certain breaks but if you if you give it everything you stand a good chance but you know you can't uh, well, you can't be a great, you know, if you want to be a great singer, but you can't actually, you haven't got talent to do it. You need to be honest with yourself and say, yeah. that's not my bag. I'm going to go, I'm, I'm going to try something else. I love that. That's a great piece of advice, especially as I caught you uh, a little off guard with that question, but it is a fabulous piece of advice. So um, unfortunately, though, I would love to go on talking to you all day, Phil, so many more things. Because the one thing I would say is if I was ever invited into a pub team quiz, uh, I reckon I'd be good on the 80s. That That's definitely a, a subject matter that I'm, I'd am i stand up against anyone on. So it's been a particular pleasure for me today. And then there's a, an awful lot of people from many different parts of the world listening to this today, uh, equally or inspired. Um, and, and really, some of the things you've said have resonated with, with all of us, I'm sure. Um, very best of luck with the latest album. Uh, we will do everything we can to promote it. I'm sure lots of the listeners will be um, scurrying to the shops and online to buy it. Um, but for the moment, Phil Gould, um, Level 42, and now solo artist, um, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the Sandro Forte podcast. Thanks for your time, Sandro. I really appreciate it. And great talking to you.